This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. And with this first podcast of the season, we are featuring some Norwegian ski royalty in Vegard Olving. At 56, he's passed the myopic quest for wins that saw him rack up Olympic and World Championship medals. He's now a core adventurer with a serious 3,000-kilometer Greenland kite ski adventure under his belt. He's also the chairman of the executive board of the International Ski Federation's Cross-Country Committee. He's been in that role since 2006. He is in the unique role of helping shape the sport when it comes to racing. We connected with Olvang in mid-October to discuss his life and his work with FIS. Before we start the interview, just a quick note from the episode sponsor, the Craftsbury Outdoor Center. As storms have been dumping record-breaking early season snow in Montana and Colorado, a mighty quiet one is brewing in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. Thanks to Crassberry Outdoor Center's snow-saving project, the lowest altitude and lowest latitude of its kind, the 2020 season opens on Friday, November 15th at Crassberry. They're guaranteeing at least one kilometer and up to three kilometers of skiing in their inaugural year of saved snow skiing. Learn more about their snow-saving project, early season lodging deals, lodging availability, and all things Craftsbury at the website, craftsbury.com. Hello. Good morning. Uh, this is Jason. How are you? Good morning for you. Uh, good evening for me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I just really, yeah. 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 Okay. Well, thanks for taking the call. I appreciate it. So I know a lot of people who who read Faster Skier, know, they know you. Okay. That's good. <laughs> but can I, I'm just going to go over the, yeah, the basics. So like, how old are you? How old I am? I am born in 1963. So I just... Uh, Past 56 yesterday. Okay. Oh, congratulations. Happy birthday. Oh, not yesterday, but but uh, last week. Sorry, last week. Last week. That's okay. October 10th. That's October right. 10th, yeah. yeah. Where are you located? I live uh, in Oslo. And, well, one of the reasons I'm getting in touch with you is you are the head of the FIS uh, cross-country committee. Yep. And what, uh, what are your other roles beyond working with FIS? What are you up to nowadays? I am a retired skier. That's what, when people ask, I say, I'm a retired skier. <laughs> There's an early retiring age <laughs> in, in, my, in my job. Well, in a, place like, in, a, in a place like Norway, if you're successful as a skier, I assume you can retire <laughs> at an early yeah, age. Yeah. Uh, if I should count, I would say that I use um, almost half of my time with uh, the, the FIS, um, uh, which is not a job. It's a vol- voluntary, unpaid position um, as chairing the committee and the committee means actually that I should um, lead two meetings a year one in the fall and one in the spring and um, but I'm I'm uh, weekly in connection with the race director of the team that runs the World Cup and and I'm also a bit involved in the Innovation Ski Association so so I am um, I would say a bit more than half of my time and I'm also with my club in my sport club so so I, I spend more than half of my time with with, uh, with skiing, actually. Yeah, I would say, roughly. And um, then I am. Um, uh, I had a clothing brand actually, but I have sold it to um, to um, to the company that also owns Swix now. It's called Brav. So 
I'm I'm in the board of that uh, company and um, in a couple of other boards. Um, um, and I do partly also make television programs, actually, uh, travel documentaries. Um, yeah. So I think that covered the most of it. <laughs> Depends on what it is. There are challenges everywhere. So, but uh, yeah. that's roughly what I spend my time on. And I have, I have two daughters. I have a family, and I um, I like to go hiking and fishing and uh, doing trips. Actually, outdoor outdoor adventures. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I spend quite a lot of time on that. So it sounds like a great sort of retirement. <laughs> well, in the summertime, it is um, it is uh, fishing, kayaking. Um, canoeing um yeah uh, hunting in the fall um i come from the north you know i'm from the very far north of norway so we have a family cabin up there and i go there at least five six weeks a year so um so um summertime it is um hiking running training whatever and uh, and fishing uh salmon fishing trout fishing um also in the in the in the ocean we have a small boat. We go to the ocean to catch uh, trout and um, cods, and um, uh, yeah. Uh, and in the winter, of course, I am occupied in most most weekends now from um, December until uh, April. I am on 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 competitions actually almost every weekend. Uh, yeah, partly supporting my daughters and the ski club, and uh, yeah, I go to workshops. Um, now and then, at least the ones in Norway, I go to the World Championships and Olympic Games. Uh, so winter is busy, but but springtime, I I love um, to be in uh, in an America called back back country and or ski touring in uh, with alpine skis in the hills. And I am uh, also become a quite fan of, uh, of of ski kiting and sailing, ski sailing and kiting. Uh, last summer I did a, a long long ski kiting trip. Um, a friend of mine is a polar historian, so we have made it a kind of of a, of a habit you now to to follow in the steps of of old um, old explorers. Um, uh, so um, last summer we went in the steps of um, in the footsteps uh, from 1892 of um, Robert Peary. Have you heard about him? Of course. Wow. Robert, he 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 was an American in Robert Peary. Yeah. 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 And he did a, a quite amazing ski trip, um, unbelievably, and not so so familiar to other explorations uh, ski trip in 1892 uh, they those two Peary and a man called Avin a young guy 22 years old they did um, a ski trip of 2000 kilometers um, with dogs first of all to use dogs actually where they crossed the north northern, northern part of Greenland and and were the first one to discover that Greenland had a northeast end actually at that time they believed that uh, greenland was going all the way to the north pole right so they they came there on 4th of july 1892 and they made a turn uh, uh, at the north northeastern tip of greenland and um and they called it navy cliff he was in the navy and and it was on you know 4th of july so they called it the independence fjord so, so we went there by ski kiting last summer and uh, found this current. And where uh, after 1992, it's only been three people there, so as far as we know. So we, oh my gosh. So that was a, a long trip. And um, and when, when we found the, after we found the current, we ski kited all the way of Greenland on the long side. So we, it was all in total a, a trip of 3,000 3, kilometers. So, so that was the 
and and uh, and from this we make a t- a, t- a TV program. So so that's um, yeah, that was just to, to tell you since, since you asked what I'm doing. So so that was uh, that was last summer's vacation. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I'm <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty jealous. Yeah. So. And is is that ski is that documentary uh, posted online anywhere? No, not yet. We are working with it, so it's not broadcasted, but okay. it will be. That is quite the adventure. <laughs> wow, good for you. Yeah. Mm. You know, you had a quite successful 1994 games in Lillehammer, and I, I can imagine that was quite the experience for you. You know, being a, a hometown hero. But I'm curious. You know, people often point to Lillehammer as kind of the last kind of small town Olympics at winter games specifically, and that the dynamic has changed quite a bit. And I'm curious, you know, what do you bring to the discussion when we have a dynamic now where say Oslo voted, you know, not even to consider, um, hosting the games, you know, coming up in the next round, uh, I guess they voted down in Calgary. What type of perspective do you bring you know, having seen the games in Lillehammer and seen how the dynamic has really changed, it's it's in you know it's obviously moved to Asia. The last cycle it'll be in China in China, which is obviously Asia uh, in 2022, which is I think is great for the sport. But it certainly changes the feel from like the small iconic ski town like Lillehammer, uh, when you might be based in uh, a larger you know, center city like Beijing with the outskirt or outlying areas hosting skiing events. I'm just curious, you know, what is your perception of that movement? Well, uh, it is, it is definitely a challenge and, um, uh, yeah, what can I say? It's a pity. Um, there are many reasons for it, of course, um, as always, and it's, it's complex. Um, um, of course, one thing is the, that the Olympics has grown is is getting big. It's gotten bigger and more expensive. Um, where I guess the responsibility is is on many places. It's on the federation. It is on the IOC. Um, uh, more sports. Um, it's easy to put in new things, and it's worse to take away things. <laughs> so it is also in my in my committee. There are always good ideas to bring in new things, but. Uh, Taking away things is not that all that is. So, um, and then of course it's a it's a, what's the right American word? It's a safety issue. Um, I mean, compared to Lillehammer, where hundred thousand spectators could walk wherever they want, they didn't even have to pay when they went to the forest. You have only to pay to the stadium. <laughs> um, I remember the first time I discovered that was in in Vancouver, two thousand ten, where where the the audience is a is a cost for the organizer. I mean, um the, the expenses related to to safety and security and how to get people in and and so is more than than you can take than than the ticket price actually. Um that's why this cross country stadium I think in Vancouver was limited to five, six thousand. It was the same in Pyongyang also and Sochi. Uh five, six thousand is a maximum what you can bring in. So the it looks like the time for the huge audiences is um, belongs to history. That's one thing. Uh, and another thing is that where the Olympics, the Olympics started actually Winter Olympics at the tourist resorts in the, in middle of Europe. And uh, it looks like going back there is 
difficult now. And and the will for them to go back there as a, I mean, it started as a promotional activity to lift them up. And um, that is also not easy anymore. Looks like that the interest has fallen down, maybe because they uh, they have their customers coming back every year. And the Olympics is uh, is just uh, disturbing that the rhythmus and the and uh, uh, yeah. It, I, anyway, I, it, there are for sure many reasons. I don't know like, all of them, but but uh, but it looks like this is a change, and and that the last year the Olympics has been organised as a part of a where two nations really want and see the Olympics as a as a commercial and marketing. Op- opportunity uh, like Pyeongchang was and like Beijing will be and um, whoever will be next but I still hope that um, we are discussing this in Norway I um, I do think and hope that Norway will apply we will for sure I think in in some years and the candidates there will of course be Lillehammer or Oslo which also you know on all understandings is considered as small cities actually where you have to discuss or solve how you can bring in actually more than 6,000 spectators actually, because especially for the cross-country events, the the interest is so high that 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 is a a challenge that has to be addressed, how you can adapt the safety and the security and and all this. This is world politics. Uh, And we also know how how the world will look like in, in uh, even in 10 years, so how this situation. But it looks like that this is big events. This is something that has come to be, actually. It is common arguments that, you know, hangs around. And it's um, it's a pity, uh, definitely. I feel it. Uh, I think we we need to go back to, to such places where where we really have roots for our sports. So, But I know that this question is addressed both in the federations and within the IOC. But that, that sort of begs the que- a little bit this question of... You know, the growth opportunity in the sport, as I see it, is obviously Asia, in particular China, where you have, you know, I'm trying to think, I spent a long time in China, maybe 1991 or so, and the economy has changed considerably where there's a lot more disposable income and people, some people choose to spend that money on recreation. And so there's huge uh, market potential, you know, or growth potential there. But at the same time, it sort of means, you know, bringing competitions to semi-urban areas. If it can't be in, say, Beijing, it'll be north of Beijing. How do you think about that when, one, there's the tension of bringing it back to places where the roots of the sport are, you know, well-rooted, like in Lillehammer, you know, Sweden, the obvious places, and balancing that with the growth that is obvious in China. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't think that neither kills the other. We are going to Beijing next time. And I also visited Beijing and and, um, and are close to the development there. And I would say that I am, <laughs> I am very, very impressed <laughs> by their courage and the, how they actually address the uh, winter sport. We have uh, about uh, 100 athletes in Norway now. We have uh, sent coaches there. It's coaches here. Uh, they invite for roller ski World Cup. They invite for sprint World Cups with huge amount of prize money. And and uh, as a cross country has never seen such a, a commitment and engagement any any time actually. And so much money spent also in a short time uh, to invest in cross country, in all fields, in in facilities, in in ski tunnels. I mean, we had a 
we had a sprint race in, in front of the bird's nest broadcasted live to Chinese audience last March. And they, they charter planes, take athletes over and, and instructors and they, they do actually everything. We have never seen this before. So of course, um, you can be scared. <laughs> you can be, uh, what is this? What is the purpose? Where is, what's the goal? Is it only the Olympics? Is it only a medal in the Olympics or is it to beat Japan or, or what will happen after 22? Um, when you discuss this with Chinese people today, they are sure we have an ambition to, to grow winter sport in China. And, uh, and uh, we want to learn, learn people to ski. Of course, as a chairman of the committee, I'm happy for this. We, we cross country need to be where there is snow, first of all, where there is minus degrees and, and winter. And we, we have to compete there and we have a long work. If this continues after, after 2022, we for sure has to go back there with um, the World Cup. Maybe not every year, but maybe like we do to the Canada, USA every second year. And, um, but this is something that we have to come back to and see where, where we are, how many athletes you see, are they able to organize it? Are they, yeah, actually what the situation is after 2022. The calendars until Beijing is clear, we, we will go there as a, with a test event in 2021 and, uh, and test the facilities and, uh, they will organize city sprints uh, in, even in Shanghai and Beijing and, uh, and Jilin, three cities you know, in already before Christmas this year. So, so they are really organizing events and, and creating a, a lot of interest for cross-country there. Whether this will turn into, um, as we are used to in America and in Europe and in the West, that we have people who go skiing as a lesser activity, we... We still have to see, or is, this is something that is done by the elite. But, um, but I am, I'm very curious, and, and I look forward to what will happen in China the next five years. That's a very, very exciting thing to, to watch and follow. As a person that obviously, I'm assuming, commands a lot of respect uh, on the cross-country committee, you're, you're often quoted in the news, your opinions about, say, doping or fluoros and wax, things like that. You know, when it comes to those issues and helping FIS evolve, let's kind of look at the doping issue first. Obviously, there was a low point again for cross-country skiing in Seyfeld. You know, big picture, what are, what are your perceptions of the state of doping in cross-country skiing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I was about to say I'm happy I, I don't know <laughs> uh, um, I actually believe and now I say I believe um, I'm only by reading by reading result lists I don't know and shall not know more than you know um, about uh, positive cases because um, as part of the VADA code this is um, so the doping question is, is, is not and should not be discussed in my, in my committee. We are a sports committee. So, so, um, so controlling is, uh, is done administratively in the, in the FIS, and, but also, as you know, by, by National Anti-Doping Agency and, and WADA. So, so, um, and, and the latest is that we, FIS, or FIS Council, which is our highest authority, they 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 shut down their their anti-doping panel, which we, which was which was um, uh, a part of, of FIS Council, and and sent it all directly to CAS. So 
So judging is then also also auto fists actually, and I think that's independency is uh, between those who make the laws and those who who judge after the laws is good actually. It's a it's a good principle actually. Um, but back to your question, what I think about the status in cross country, I um, I think we are cleaner than in many many years, um, and this I say be- only by reading the result leaks actually, because there are. Small differences. Um, people are even from the beginning of the season to the end. There is no big jumps. No, 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 no people coming from no, some nothing and suddenly winning a race. Um, There's quite also sports-wise understandable result list actually. So I hope and I, I believe that we are mostly cleaner than ever and uh, actually in many many years actually. That's actually what I believe. Um, but as I said, I don't know anything. <laughs> And, and for me, we, we shouldn't, I cannot say anything before we have a positive case. You know, I report on the sport, right? So I'm aware of like all the different, you know, the best that I can be, the trends uh, in terms of performance, but also prevalence of doping in sport. You know, I can't ignore that. So there are times when I see a performance and I'm skeptical. I'm like, Ugh, I, I'm not sure that's a clean performance. So I'm wondering, do you ever have that perception when you when you see someone have just an amazing performance, a completely stand out? Do you think in the back of your mind, like, okay, I hope this athlete is clean, or do you never do you ever go there? I do very very rarely see that. No, uh, I have to admit that that I see. I don't see any any suspicious results uh, anymore, actually, at least um, very, very seldom, actually, or, or it, it's a long time. I have to admit before when people come from nothing and, and they really, they really did well. Um, and I also know the control system, the blood path system, so where you really can cheat. I, I have to say, I, and I'm honest though, I, I believe in those systems and I believe that, um, of course, there are for sure always something that you cannot take, actually. But but the big picture, I think, from when I, as I said, look at the result list now and look at race, I don't see any. People get tired, no, and and they fall off, and they are they have good periods in the season, they have low periods in the season, they have sicknesses, and they come back. But but the best years are dominating, and they are. I I'm not suspicious when I see any kind of performance. I am I'm absolutely. I I, I wouldn't say that no. Even watching the the people that was um, caught last year, in uh, in this case in Seffield, the, the the nations involved, uh, we have to admit that they they have been on the suspicious list. But um, looking at the result the last years, uh, I would um, that actually surprises me. So the the effect of what they have been doing, I think, must have been rather small actually there. Yeah. It's more what I found interesting in a depressing way about the doping cases in Seyfeld is that beyond Polteranen, the other athletes that were choosing to do this were, you know, I don't want to say, I mean, they weren't regular podium skiers, but they were obviously making the choice to dope for livelihood reasons, for career reasons, what have you. But it's not just simply a matter of like, I'm going to pop a top three result. It's I might pop a f- top 15, a top 20. When I looked at the people that were, you know, rounded up uh, in Seyfeld, like that was my 
sort of a revelation for me. Like, okay, these are middle of the pack skiers that are choosing to do this. Yeah, I I I understand what you say, and I I I was of course also very disappointed, and I I didn't I didn't I I wouldn't have guessed that this will happen. It was a big surprise to me because, um, as I said, I read the result list, and I, and I those the result of those athletes hasn't been very suspicious good at all. So 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 I hope this was the last rest of something that was before and but of course you never know there comes new methods the wheel of cheating will maybe always be running ahead of of the control system but but anyway i yeah the reading the result list 10 15 20 25 years 30 years ago wasn't that nice we have to admit yeah yeah so then it is no so that's why i am for the future i am i am very positive i'm very positive i am um, and, the, and the will to control and, and how the anti-doping work is organized, of course, it can always be discussed um, if the sanction is hard enough, if it's, uh, yeah, uh, how many years and, and, and if the control system is good or not or bad. Or not, it, it, it could always be improved, but it's still compared to what it was um, before, actually. We know it is much better. It has really improved. and. The will also, it's my impression that the will on the highest level, even in IOC and FIS, is to, to, to deal with these challenges is, um, is positive, actually. Uh, definitely. It's a will. It's not, a, it's not hidden under the, ta- under the carpet anymore. Not at all. No. But of course, as I said, it could always be discussed how, how WADA is, is independent and all the interest is. This. And it's also so that when we involve to say the biggest nations, it's always easier to judge hard with small people than it is to deal, deal with the biggest nations. That's, a, that's a, I mean, we um, in an international sports family, we need all, we need all nations and we need the biggest nations. So discussing sanctions is, um, I'm happy it's not my job. <laughs> okay, so one of the things that you are credited with is sort of having the vision to start the tour to ski. And I'm, I'm I imagine there were other people involved, but it, what have you learned? you know, since the inception of that event and how it's become kind of a marquee uh, part of the calendar. During a championship year, you might get an athlete like, say, Bjorgen or Kala and some other top names who, for, who, who do not compete, you know, so they can peak for, say, world champs or the Olympics. But for the most part, it, it's a well-attended part of the World Cup. What have you learned you know, since the inception of that event, and um, what are some changes that you'd like to see uh, incorporated? Well, um, first, short about the history here. Uh, the motivation for introducing this competition was, uh, first of all, that that cross country had had developed then from a, from a sport where everyone did the same event um, or distance or technique uh, in my time every every weekend, and then to uh, to two techniques first classic and free and then to sprints and, and different distances and, and so so we one of the goal was to gather the whole family in one competition and one winner at the end actually after a, a model from cycling uh, that was number one and number two was that we wanted a, a great event in in middle of europe um where where we we, we gather all the media we, we see when you have a competition that goes over days and you have overall timing and so we, the media is following the whole circuit for a whole week and you get not only stories from from one race but you get from the whole concept the whole week and so, so the 
the amount of publicity here in Europe is is amazing, and and they have we have more viewers on to the sea than they have of the whole World Cup. Uh, at all today, actually. So, so this to the ski is important, actually. But um, of course, in all endurance sports, compared to, yeah, let's say more technical sports, you 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 need training periods and you need resting time. And, and um, so, I have no problem understanding that that the women, especially on the on the women's side, that they, uh, yeah, some of the best athletes has has another priority than uh, I would say we like. But for the men, you know, they have been more or less. Full participation. So then, to the, what can we do with this? Of course, there is a discussion of how many races it should be, how demanding the program, how demanding the traveling should be, the logistics, and that that we can do. But um, on the other side, we have also to discuss with the coaches and everyone that um, there's a kind of, of uh, uh, how should I put the wording, professional responsibility here to to take part in those big events actually um, but it's at the same time it's a picture of how important the olympics and the world championships are concerning publicity it's that's that's the arenas where you are where we are being made a star actually um, and it's also connected to the i have pushed the ball forward to the ski industry who actually who actually has some influence on, on the races they they are on their on their playlist, <laughs> at least some of them, and where there is publicity, they should be. The sponsors, I mean, they pay for that. So it's a kind of attitude challenge that we have to address, but in a soft way. I mean, we, as sport and as a committee, we should never push anyone. This is voluntarily. But uh, sometimes I would say I miss a kind of professional attitude that you have to... I was quoted in the Norwegian newspaper last winter that I said sometimes the athlete has to go to job Monday morning at eight o'clock. <laughs> uh, so, um, and then, yeah, that was, uh, this created some discussion. So, but I, as I said, we, we are a small sport. There are relatively a small amount of money involved and, and people are free to do their priorities, even the athletes. I did it myself. I didn't go on the races. I was hard. So I, Definitely understand it. Uh, definitely understand it. So, so um, it is about to find a mixture here between um, between the amount of, of, of World Cups. We have also discussed to take away the weekend after and, and cut it down. Which, again, we, we made we decided upon some principles um, in our meetings in Dubrovnik in June, but now in Zurich last week we left them <laughs> because there were the organizers present and. And the same people who are in the in the in the in the committee structure of S, they are also representing both athletes and and their organizers. And and in June they they defended the athletes who clearly wanted less competitions and bigger weekends. And and now in Zurich they they defended their organizers who who um, who all want a race. I mean we 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 pushed forward Minneapolis because we want to go to the United States. Just to use an example, we brought in Minneapolis, uh, even though we know that that the competition program, the upcoming winter is almost. Um, we know it's too demanding that that is has to give priority. Um, that's why we choose to to put it into a kind of sprint tour, so the distance skiers go directly to Canmore and so on. Ideally, I don't like this situation, but it's um it's a kind of picture on how FIS is organized because we are owned by the Federation. So and many people doesn't understand this. So, so it's maybe a picture that you can correct actually, because we, 
um, if you compare to biathlon, they have all the rights within the international biathlon unit, all the commercial rights, all the all the all the TV rights where the money is. And um, but we are organized differently, and there are pros and contras on every way of being organized. But we are organized by. When it's a race in the U.S., all the rights and all the things is, is by the organizers and the United States Ski Association, and the same in Norway. So that's why making the calendar isn't a, something that we can just sit and decide, we go there, we go there, because that's practical and that's best, and there we do promotion of skiing, and there we, we have to, to find organizers who can organize and won't organize and can find, and find, uh, finance it. So, so, so um, that is... Um, uh, actually, one of the things that makes me most frustrated for the moment, because we we are totally or or, or finding the best solution or the compromises here is difficult. When uh, when we have to go to the, to certain historical places and we go to new places and then no one will let off and everyone wants to be in. So so that creates challenges for us when we are when we also think about the, how many races an athlete can do actually. So. I don't know if you if you understood this, but uh, <laughs> I, I tried to explain. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I, I just brought up we made a little interactive map at Faster Skier a couple maybe a month or so ago, and I'm looking here. Right. I mean, exactly. So so for example, if you go to last year, the there was the Tour de Ski, and then I think the following weekend was a Sprint weekend. Yeah. Yeah. And and we actually, as I said, in June we decided to take away this weekend after. And actually, all of all, everyone agreed. But when we came back, no, there was a huge pressure from the German Ski Association, from the sure. president, and from Dresden as an organizer that we have to be in Germany, and this is the, this is the time we could be. It. So we we put in both of them, and we put in Sweden actually. So we we left the principle that was easy to agree upon in June, and we are now back with that. More or less the same calendar as we had the last year. Right. So, so <laughs> it's just an example, actually. <laughs> yeah, and I guess one yeah, of the yeah, pro- it depends yeah. on you know if you're a sprinter, you're pulling out of the tour de ski midway through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. And getting prepped for Dresden. Yeah. All right. I mean, at yeah. least and I have to happen. be honest. Politically, I'm I'm not sure that it's good for cross country that we split too much between between sprint and distance skiing. Actually, it's um. It is very good that we have some crossovers, and they and we and if you go to the Olympics and the championships where everyone is racing, you see that it's a nice mix between specialists and all-road skiers here, and and that's um yeah that I think that's good actually. The more we split the two disciplines, I think we are too small to handle this. And the same question I apply when we speak about doing, for example, a hundred-meter sprint. Actually, we we can actually compete in all distances in in cross country and we can make good entertainment and good school races. But um, in the championships, we, we have to choose actually. We, we cannot um, allow everything. And um, if we take new events or new distances in, we have to take all ones out actually. And that's um, always the hard discussion. So, you know, here again, just one last question on the calendar. Like, so the all, the all round skiers will be doing, I forget the name. I think ski tour 2020 where half of it is in, it is in Sweden, half is in Norway, finishing in Tron time. Yeah. Th- yeah. They then will fly. Now, this is my question. Do you assume th- then there's a, sp- a mini sprint tour in Quebec in Minneapolis and yep. then world cup final yep. weekend in Canmore. Mm-hmm. Do you, I guess the assumption is that 
those skiers that are completing that that finish the ski tour 2020, which will be people who are probably vying for overall, you know, globes, um, the Klebos and such. Yeah, yeah. Do you think many of the skiers that mm-hmm. are distance oriented will simply skip Quebec in Minneapolis and fly straight to Canmore? I, I, it's impossible to answer, but I guess uh, a lot will do, but it depends upon how, I guess, how the point situa- situation is and where you have to be to make points. And it's, of course, different from a club or a Bolshoe, not to other races, right? So, 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 um, but some will for sure do. And I guess most racers will do that. Uh, but the, the few of them who at that time of the year is fighting for the, for the globe, I hope, uh, I, I, I take for sure that they will be where they can get points, actually. So, so. So it will be, and it's also depending if you are a sprint, um, have abilities in sprints or it's, a, or it's a, a clean distance skier. So, but I have to say, as I said, I, I don't like the calendar for next year. It's, it's too demanding. It's too much race. It's too much of a compromise actually, but um, we are there. That, that's a kind of a picture of, of how we are organized actually. And I hope this, this way of organizing or, or having placed those rights is being on the agenda on the highest level in FIS in the future, because I'm not sure that we can live so many more years with this, with this system, actually. Okay. So one of the things, and this is as we kind of roll along here, uh, and I appreciate your time, you know, the World Cup is coming back to the U.S. for the first time, I think, since the trial event in Salt Lake City, which would have been 2001. Uh, so it's been a long time. And part of that is, you know, part of that is the travel reality to North to, to the U.S., the funding model, television rights. So, I, I think back in 2005 there was a World Cup in Sovereign Lake in Canada. It took a, a, maybe something like six years to to pay off. How do you convince communities like Minneapolis and other potential North American venues to kind of take on? these types of financial realities when, you know, the, the TV revenue sharing model, you know, it's, it's still a model that is working out some serious kinks, as we say, in the U.S. You know, how do you, how do you convince, you know, these communities to, to take on? I'm, uh, I wouldn't say that I, I should convince anyone <laughs> to apply for a World Cup. Uh, um, but I, I, um, this is also a picture on how we are organized. I don't like the model we have today. Um, the main difference for, for, for overseas organizers is that they have to, you are not on, on the broadcasted live actually. So you have to pay for the production actually to be on TV. And, um, and that creates some costs that overseas organizers doesn't have compared to in Europe uh, where we are live on live TV and, and the production cost is a part of the, of the whole TV rights agreement, actually. So I don't like the system. Um, uh, it could be organized in a different way, which actually would make it easier to go to, to more remote, also remote places or new places or to actually expand the sport and develop the sport in new areas because organizations create interest. We know that create lock when we go to Sovereign Lake or to, Minneapolis, local people see are introduced to skiing, and we can get new fans and, and new new recruitment towards sport. That's important, and but we have no. I mean, as long as FIS has no no rights, no income, 
we have also no money to spend actually on, on those places actually. So, but I, uh, in my committee, those questions is not discussed actually. It's discussed on the highest level. And uh, so it's a, it's a question you should ask to your president actually. <laughs> okay. You don't mean like the guy in the white house. You mean the president? No, no, not, 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 not him for sure. Not him for sure. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> not him for sure. But, um, yeah. And then, and then you have a, con- it takes the pain, isn't it? Yeah. I think he's your, he's your council member. He's sitting in FIS council. I think he's in the, in the board, actually. So, but but how this is organized? I mean, it is it is definitely demanding for overseas organizers. Definitely demanding, yeah, yeah. But if it, of course, if it takes uh, six years to pay the cost to have a have a World Cup, I I understand that they question whether this is worth the money. Def- definitely, yeah. When we think of models, I mean, the most clean, I would say the clean the cleanest model when it comes to Nordic sport is obviously biathlon. And when I mean clean, I mean they are, from my understanding, they own the production outfit. They own the rights themselves. And so you can stream events live on their website. What, what are your thoughts about, do you, in terms of that biathlon model, is that something that you'd perhaps like to see FIS move towards in the future, for cross-country at least? Well, um, there are different models, and they are very different, definitely, um, as you explained. Um, it's a question how you share the money here, actually. We have to look at our model, that's for sure. If it's possible to, to move into all the way into the biathlon model with, with a common rights system um, owned by FIS, or FIS is partnering with rights companies, I'm not close enough to those questions to see the solutions, but I see that there are definitely advantages by, by having common rights if you want to sell the World Cup has one package and the ability to go to other places and the quality of the TV projects and, and so on. So, uh, but at the same time, we see that many of the biathlon federations are, are poor because they have no rights, actually. <laughs> um, but it's easier to, to handle uh, uh, or to organize or to go to events or places where the interest is not highest. Um, um, so, but I hope these questions will be addressed. But it's, it's depending on... Actually, what does what does the United States Ski Association mean? Uh, it's also connected to do what what they do in in Alpine. In Alpine, we have the same system as in Alpine. It works there, obviously. And or we are in Alpine. You go to the United States every every year with the same system, and it looks to work there. But we are a smaller sport and have all the other challenges. So. so if we are going to change the system, the, the National Federation has to give up some rights and trust that they get some money back in other ways. And that's, um, as you understand, a very difficult question, actually. And, and people in the nation have to trust each other that this is a better solution. And so, so actually, we are, as, as FIS, is a, a federation of nations. And, and nations have to agree upon a common solution that is the best for the sport. And, yeah, so we, we have the solutions on hands in Tweed and if we find international agreement. But, um, as in all politics, international agreements is sometimes hard to find. Then you can ask White House, man. Yeah. Okay, so let's, uh, this is sort of my... I, th- I think we leave that subject. Okay, yeah, let's leave that subject. And this is, but but we're moving on to a subject that is equally as controversial. And this, this is, this is... Um, you know, your name comes up quite a bit and you're, you've been very publicly involved with the debate going on currently about fluorinated ski waxes and their use at 
you know, elite level com- competitions through, at least in Norway, I know that there's a fluoro ban for 16 year olds and under. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of discussion. And I know that you attended the, I think the pop, I always mispronounce this, but pop free ski yeah. goes yeah. global. You were yeah. at that conference in Sweden. Yeah. 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 Um, and you were quoted in their press release. And mm-hmm. I am curious, like, you know, what, what are your thoughts about one fluoros and their use at the world cup level and how that change might look in the near future and in the distant future. Let's start there. What are your thoughts on that? Well, um, first of all, uh, this is a, a, a very complex problem that could be or should be addressed from many angles. The EU regulation that is coming uh, from 4th of July now, uh, next year, um, means that the fastest products of today, which means most of the powder and all the liquids of the, the bomb that's, that's uh, toppings that's used, uh, will be forbidden to produce, but also to, to cross border with, and to partly actually federation is, has lost not league and uh, will not be allowed to use it actually uh, also the russians actually so but but russian chemical factories if they exist or chinese or every outside outside the eu can actually produce it still uh, these substances um uh, but not in not in eu so that is that case but what um what brings me most headache now is that uh, already this year in minneapolis we uh, for sure i'm quite sure that that all skis that will be used in the competition in Minneapolis will be used with substances that you already for now are not allowed to import to USA. So uh, whether they will wash the skis at home or they will smuggle products, I don't know, but um, I guess the risk of a private person being caught in the, in the US customs is not too high, but still having a system where we are breaking national laws isn't good. Uh, it's not uh, it's not sustainable, actually. And uh, on the same time, you can see that from next after 4th of July, we know that the factories are working hard to find uh, find new products that is, can compete with the old ones. But um, they have known that this rule is coming for the last five years, and they have still not found uh, products that can compete with the old ones um, or, or some claim they have. As we, we don't know before the winter is coming when we see those those products coming. What I am fearing that we next winter will have World Cup competition or competitions ever with the, with products used to wash the skis, which um, which is not allowed to buy or sell, but they, they buy this winter and they put in the basement and they take it up next year. And and what will happen when when they have when this when their store is, is empty, we know that teams or athletes on every level actually if it's kids races or, or national levels or, or whatever, they, they wax. If there's a wax, that's good. I think you wrote on your, I think it was on you know, one article on your page, you said that, uh, that uh, even if you could, it was proved that you could wax the skis with gold. <laughs> Some teams would we, we, buy it and use it, actually. I think it's a very good example that, uh, that we use the fastest, um, fastest waxes. Uh, and uh, there is a will of, using substantial amount of money to, to get, get those things. And I'm, I'm not sure if everyone thinks that this is, well, legally or not, um, 
especially if they know that we don't have a, a good control system. I have to say this worries me most to, uh, these days, actually. I'm really worried how the situation will be. I, we, we, uh, we have a kind of control method today in Norway, which we tested last year with a lot of noise afterwards on the, on the kids, uh, um, where, you, where you sample the skis and you send it to a laboratory in Germany and you get the results after a week. And then you have to deal with the results here. It's, it's accurate, but um, then we had trouble with um, brushes. If you use old brushes with only a small part of fluor, in, uh, old fluor there, you will have it on the skis and it will be detected on this test. And, Maybe some did it by purpose, some did it without purpose, and then you have also, you know, manufacturers, also producers of this stuff, who actually are not sure whether it whether it's fluorine or not. To be honest, there, you know, there are a lot of local production production small companies who um, not all of them even have a chemistry employed, and um, um, yeah, we have a lot of those substances where, where we are not sure about what it contains actually. So. And then on another angle to this is, um, which we see very clearly in Norway, where we have races with, uh, with thousands of athletes going to Norwegian Cup for Junior, for example, or senior, uh, huge competitions where we walk in, in tents and where the, if you measure the, the, the pollution or the, or the number of dust particles, it's, uh, it's not a nice working, working um, environment. Um, and second or third or whatever you have the, the cost here as a as a organized I have a, I'm part of my Oslo club. Uh, of course, fluor is expensive, but it also demands more operations, more more human power. So it is also connected to the fluor. Actually, with the old fluor, you see that you have need to bring less people, hire less place in a walk-in tent. So. Actually, actually, half of the cost that we split back to the parents is connected to renting the boxing place in a tent, <laughs> and then comes the fluor and so. So, and we know that also on on the World Cup level, we we have in Zurich now also try to reduce also reduce this this carousel actually, where the biggest teams bring even more service people, more private service, more more testing, more more yeah. And it's no question that the biggest teams have more or less often, quite often, the fastest skis. So the decisions we made in Zurich was to try to, to stop this or to control this development, at least, uh, by reducing the access to the tracks uh, before the start. Or, or as I have said, we have to transfer more of the responsibility from, from the service team to the athletes, actually, which means athletes have to test more skis themselves. They have to cannot count to be a one-to-one service all the time, actually. It's uh, not making the competitions fast for everyone, and it's, it's damn expensive. And you might say that it, it's killing our sport from inside. Another example I've given is that in, in Norway, I said it's, it's almost not possible to reach the top if you don't have a part-time father who's walking your skis, actually. It's uh, another point of this, a, a consequence of of all these discussions here. So I know it's not possible to turn the, the clock backwards. If we can, by common decisions and agreements, uh, try to control this or reduce this, this need. I think it's better that more of the competition is decided in the track and not in, in, the, in the boxing huts or, or vans or whatever where they do it. You know, some people say it needs to be a grassroots movement to change, at least like say here specifically in the US. It needs to occur at the junior club level and to have 
I guess, protocol put in place that controls kind of sit like you were talking about access to the tracks, like all the skis are funneled into, you know, you have to get them marked. Mm -hmm. They're cleaned before you go into a venue. And I know that this discussion has been going on in Norway as well. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you start controlling for fluoros on skis if you're testing the skis, right? Because maybe they use a tainted brush. Mm -hmm. Maybe the skis have Mm -hmm. been waxed. Yeah. Um, two months ago with fluor- fluorinated compounds. My question mm-hmm. is, do you see a role for the FIS cross-country committee to push the agenda and start making changes? Or is this something that's going to be more driven from the bottom and grassroots level and then percolate up to the World Cup eventually? Interesting questions. I'm I'm afraid we have to do both, <laughs> have to, as always, do both ways. <laughs> Uh, every pressure that comes from Dawn and every change that comes from Dawn is good. Uh, at the same time, we, what we see, at least in Norway, where I'm most, is that every test method, every way of boxing, every way of organizing a test team is copied from national level to to the local level. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so I am. I hope, or I'm. I'm that that the decision we made now in city for the upcoming winter will change the the or the, the way the teams are organizing themselves and that this has also to be copied both the rules and the attitude will be copied at at lower levels actually um but we have to to try no we try this i'm not sure if we will succeed uh, and we have to do it step by step i mean transferring too much of the responsibility to the athletes is will will create resistance and 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 bad comments and so on. So we we do it um, slowly over a two to five year period. I think that's that's a that's my strategy for the moment. That we do what we can and see what 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 has effect here. Actually, I um, but this as I said, this fluor thing. We know it depends on many things. Do the do the manufacturers um, do Swix and Toku and Valti find new substances and if they don't find how if it's this uh, turns into a, a black market thing i mean we i don't see any other solution than than a total ban with an effective control method actually um, at the moment then where we have an effective control method i think a ban has to come as soon as possible actually and and that's a decision definitely that has to be made in in fis actually. so so um and when when you say ban, do you mean like all fluorinated, perfluorinated waxes? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. Okay. All yeah, because the the um, I d- I don't think that you can find any test method that can separate C8 from C6 and 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 by the way, I also it looks like no that that regulations will come from authorities in, in EU, in United States, mm-hmm. also from, for, for the C6 compounds actually. So, so, um, and we, and, and, uh, it, as I said many times also, this is, um, whether it's regulated or not, I mean, this is a thing that, that harms the environment. It's, it's not good for the health. And we can always argue that what we have is just a small, small percentages of the overall world consume of these products. And what we do or not has no effect, but still it, it goes to our reputation actually. And, 
and we will be attacked by media and for and what our image is to be a clean sport and and protect preserving the nature and so on and so 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 we will be attacked and we we have no choice actually so we have to dig into those problems and and when we also know that that is for me the biggest argument is is the cost level actually it is fluor is is limiting our of the recruitment of new skiers i i used an example in my club or in norway that in my club we have a decision that the first time we introduced fluor for for our our eraser is the national championships for 15 16 years old that how that's how it was and the first time we and when we bring parents there parents who hasn't uh, been to so many big cross-country races. They only done local races, and they haven't seen fluor, and they haven't seen boxing tents. And then they come to a race with more than 1,000 participants, and they come to five big party tents, and inside they meet 50 people with gas masks. <laughs> I'm afraid we lose many of them. And they say, this is not something my kid is going to continue with. I, I, also, um, it's not nice to move into those big tents with hundreds of walks technicians and parents who everyone is looking for the best glide for their son and daughter and and everyone is is wearing a gas mask. Uh, we are losing we are losing a lot of valuable talents and it's not so all sport has to be so 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 we have to deal with those problems and we we we, uh, we cannot continue as it is now. Uh, I'm I, I I see it every weekend when I go to kids races and, and we we um, what we are doing is seen from the outside is um, is uh, doesn't look nice. <laughs> Did you understand again? Did you catch? Totally. I mean, I understand. You're you're very clear. You're okay. very clear. Okay. So okay. Well, I appreciate. I really, really appreciate your time. No uh, problem. And your openness. Yep. Yep. I am mm. curious. Last question. Super mm. easy. Yeah. It sounds like you kite skied about three thousand. Uh, 3,000 kilometers across Greenland last summer. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. From the northwest to the northeast side, and then, and then almost all all the Greenland on the long side in the end, yeah, to the nearest airport. Yeah, that's also the, the way back. Yeah. What is your, what is what's your next adventure? Uh, no, no exact plans. But we, we my friend, the historian, we are working on other other historical. Uh, things to to do uh, to be the first that's to be number second <laughs> gosh all right you've got me excited yep. to go try this now okay well thanks for your time really appreciate it yep. and uh thanks yep. for all your work okay bye-bye. all right bye-bye Bye. take care bye thanks for listening and remember the craftsbury outdoor center will open for skiing and the winter season on november 15th